Chapter 19 of The Harbor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Harbor by Ernest Poole. Chapter 19. The next morning, after the rush of relief at the news of Eleanor's safety and the strange sight of our tiny son, I felt keyed gloriously high, ready for anything under the sun. But there seemed to be nothing whatever to do, I felt in the way each time that I moved, so I took to my old refuge. Work. And then into my small workroom came Eleanor's father for a long talk. He, too, had been up all night. His lean face was heavily marked from the strain, but their unusual deep serenity had come back into his quiet eyes. "'Let's take a day off,' he said, smiling. "'We're both so tired we don't know it.' "'Tired?' I demanded. "'Yes,' he said. "'You're tired, more than you've ever been in your life. You'll feel like a rag by tomorrow, and then I'll hope you'll take a good rest.' but today, while you are still way up, I want to talk to you about your work. Do you mind?' "'Mind? No,' I replied a bit anxiously. "'It's just what I'm trying to figure out.' "'I know you are. You've figured for months and you've worked yourself thin. I don't mind that. I like it, because I know the reason. But I don't think the result has been good. It seems to me you've been so anxious to get on because of this large family of yours, that you've shut yourself up and written too fast. You've gotten rather away from life. Shall I go right on? Yes, I said, watching intently. Well, he continued, you've been using what name you've already made and writing short stories of harbor life. That's what the editors want, I said. When a man makes a hit in one vein of writing, they want that and nothing else. At this rate you'll soon work out of the vein, he said. I'd like to see you stop writing now, take time to find new ground, and dig. There's not an awful lot of time, I remarked. My plan won't stop your making money, he replied. I want you to write less, but get more pay. That sounds attractive. How shall I do it? By writing about big men, he said. I suggest that you try a series of portraits of some of the big Americans, and the America they know. I jumped up so suddenly he started. What's the matter? he asked with a glance at the door. Did you hear anything? Yes, I said excitedly. I heard a stunning title. The America They Know. We discussed it all that morning, and it appealed to me more and more. Later on, with Eleanor's help, for she grew stronger fast those days, I prevailed upon her father to let me practice upon himself as my first subject. I worked fast, my material right at hand, and within a few weeks I had written the story of those significant incidents out of thirty years of work and wanderings east and west that showed the America he had known, his widening view. I did his portrait, so to speak, with his back to the reader, letting the reader see what he saw. This story I sold promptly, and under the tonic of that success I went into the work with zest and vim. It filled the next four years of my life. It took the view I had had of the harbor and widened it to embrace the whole land, which I now saw altogether through the eyes of the men at the top. 
the most central figure of them all, and by far the most difficult to attack, was a powerful New York banker, one of those invisible gods whose hand I had felt on the harbor. "'The value of him to you,' Dillon said, "'is that if you can only make him talk you'll find him a born storyteller. The secret scandal of his life is that once in a short vacation he tried to write a play. It was weeks before he would see me, and I had my first interview at the last only by getting on a night train which he had taken for Cleveland. There, in his stateroom cornered, he received me with a grim reluctance and with a humorous glint in his eyes. "'How much do you know about banking?' he asked. "'Nothing,' I said, frankly, and then I took a sudden chance. "'What do you know about writing?' I asked. "'Nothing,' he said placidly. "'Is that true? I thought you once wrote a play.' He sat up very quickly. "'If you did,' I went on, "'you've probably read some of Shakespeare's stuff. It was strong stuff about strong men. If he were alive he'd write about you, but I'm sure that he wouldn't know about banking. That's only your job. What do you want of me, young man? he inquired. Is it my soul? Not at all, I answered. It's the America you know, expressed in such simple human terms that even a young ignoramus like me will be able to understand it. Out of this big country a good many thousands of men, I suppose, have come to you for money. Which are the most significant ones? And I went on to explain my idea. Soon it began to take hold of him. We talked until after midnight, and later we had other talks. It was hard at first in the questioning to dodge the technical side of it all, the widely intricate workings of that machine of credit of which he was chief engineer. But as he saw how eager I was to feel his view and become enthused, by degrees he humanized it all. And not only that, he trusted me. He gave me the most intimate glimpses into his life of big money, although when I dared to include such bits in the story that I showed him, he calmly scratched them out and said, "'You're mistaken, young man. I didn't say that.' As he talked I saw again that vision I had had on the North River docks. For into this man's office had come the men of the mines, the factories and the mills, the promoters of vast irrigations on prairies, builders of railroads, store owners, newspaper proprietors, politicians, the builders and boomers, the strong, energetic men of the land. He showed me their power and made me feel it was still but in its infancy. He made me feel a dazzling future rushing upon us, a future of plenty still more controlled by the keen minds and wide visions of the powerful men at the top. Of all these men and the rushing world of power they lived in I have only a jumble of memories now, for my own life was a jumble, irregular, crowded, and intense. In their offices, clubs and homes, in their motors on yachts and trains, in Chicago and Pittsburgh and other cities, I followed them, making my time suit theirs. Some had no use for me at all, but I found others delighted to talk, like the great Dakota ranchman who ordered twenty thousand copies of the issue in which his story appeared, and scattered them like seeds of fame over the various counties of wheat, corn, and alfalfa he owned, 
and in the main I had little trouble. I met often that curious respect which so many men of affairs seem to have, God knows why, for a successful writer. I got in where men with ten times my knowledge were barred. I remember with a touch of shame the Institute of Scientific Research, where the chief of the place took a whole afternoon to show me around, and while I looked wise and tried to feel thrilled over glass tubes and jars and microscopes through which I peered at microbes, a simple old country doctor, one of the thousands of common visitors, by my invitation followed humbly in my wake, murmuring from time to time, Miraculous! By George! Astounding! And gratefully pressing my hand at the end, this has been the chance of a lifetime, he said. Perhaps the principal reason why I got so warm a welcome was the name I had already made as a writer of glory stories. I liked these men. I liked to enthuse over all the big things they were doing. And still true to my efficiency, God, the immense importance of getting things done loomed so high in my view of life as to overshadow everything else. My sense of moral values changed. It was a strange unmoral world. In the Institute of Science these keen laboratory gods, who had seemed so cold and comfortless to me but a few short years ago, were perfecting a cure for syphilis. Strong men were removing the wages of sin. In Chicago I met the president of a huge industrial company who had found it necessary at times to use money on politicians. For this he had been sent to jail, but later his influence got him out. Promptly he was made treasurer of another company. In one year, through his energy, now more intense than ever, the business of that company increased some thirty-five per cent, whereupon the directors of the original corporation, after a stormy meeting in which two church deacon directors fussed and fumed considerably, unanimously decided to ask him to come back. He did. He told me the story quite frankly himself. I admired him tremendously. The head of a mining company sat in his office one afternoon and talked of the labor problem. There was no right or wrong involved, he said. It was simply a matter of force. Once, when a strike threatened, he had called in a labor expert who had used money wholesale and there had been no strike. Well, he asked, smiling, what do you think of it? I think I can't print it. He still smiled. Naturally not. But what do you think? If you yourself were responsible to several hundred stockholders, what would you do? Risk a strike that might wipe out their dividends? Or would you resort to bribery? His smile slowly deepened. Which is a penal offense in this state. I found such questions cropping up almost everywhere I went. In their dealings with the public, and still more with their rivals, there was a ruthless vigor that swept old-fashioned maxims aside. And I liked this, for it got things done. I was bored to find, as I often did, these men in their homes quite old-fashioned again to suit sober old wives who still went to church. I remember one such elderly lady and the shock I unwittingly gave her. She had deplored the decline of churches. Her own, she said, was barely half full and I then tried to cheer her by an account of my last story, which was of an advertising man, a genius who in the last two years had made churches 
his especial line, and by his up-to-date methods had packed church after church on a commission basis. Her burst of disapproval almost drove me from the house, and there were so many homes like that. Men who were perfect giants by day would become the gentlest babies at night, allowing their wives to read to them such sentimental drivel as would have been kicked from the office by day. But God knows they need such raucous homes, I reflected, to rest in. I never dreamed before how strenuous men's lives could be. One day in the New York office of a big plunger in real estate I pointed to a map on the wall. What are all those lots marked vacant for? I asked him. I never saw many vacant lots in that part of town. He grinned cheerfully. Anything under four stories is vacant to us, he answered, because it pays to buy it, tear it down, and build something higher. That was the way they crowded their cities. And as with their cities, so with their lives. One story that interested me most was of the weird America which a renowned nerve specialist knew. To him came these men, broken down, some on the verge of insanity. He gave me stories of their lives, of his glimpses into their straining minds. He described their pathetic efforts to rest, their strenuous attempts to relax. He himself had some mysterious ailment. His hands kept trembling while he talked. His wife said he hadn't had a vacation of over a week in eleven years. From such men I would turn to exuberant lives, like that of the Tammany leader now dead, who gave a $10,000 banquet one night in the Tenek in Albany in honor of the newsboy who every morning for twenty-two winters had brought morning papers to him in bed in his hotel room. Or like that of the millionaire merchant who told me, with the most naive pride, of the eleven hundred electric lights in his new home on Fifth Avenue, and of how the bathrooms of both his large daughters were fitted in solid silver throughout. Not plated, understand, he said. I told the architect while he was at it to put in the real solid stuff, and plenty of it. Through this varied throng of successes, this rich abundance of types, I ranged with an ever-deepening zest. As a hunter of game I watched that endless human procession on and off the front pages of papers, the men who were for the moment news. Often small people, too, would be there, like the telephone girl from a suburb who for one day, as the most important witness in a sensational case of graft, was suddenly before the whole country, and then as suddenly dropped out of sight. In fact, that was now my view of the land, figures emerging from dark, obscure multitudes up into the bright circle of light. And I took this front-page view of New York. I saw it as a city where big exceptional people were endlessly doing sensational things, both in the making and spending of money. I saw it not only as a cluster of tall buildings far downtown, but uptown as well a towering pile of rich hotels and apartments, a region that sparkled gaily at night, lights flashing from tens of thousands of rooms, in and out of which I felt delightedly millions of people had passed through the years. I loved to look up at these windows at night, at the sheer inscrutability of them, for behind these twinkling masses I knew were all things tragic, comic, people laughing, fighting, hating, scheming, dreaming, loving, living. 
I thought of that row of cabins de luxe that I had seen on the Christmas boat. Here was the same thing magnified, a monstrous caravansary with but one question over its doors. Have you got the price? Once I had seen a harbor. Then it had grown into a port, and now I saw a metropolis, the hub of a successful land. And through this gay city of triumph I moved, myself a success, and my view of the whole was colored by that. My life as an observer was sprinkled with personal moments that made me see everything in highlights. I would watch the life of a street full of people, and I myself would be on my way to an interview with some noted man, or coming away from one who had given me stuff that I knew would write up big, I knew just how. Or at a corner newsstand I would catch a glimpse of my name on the cover of some magazine. Again I would be hurrying home or into a neighboring florist or a theater ticket office, or diving into the jolly whirl of the large Fifth Avenue toy shop in which I took an unflagging delight. In my mind would be thoughts of a pillow fight, or a long evening with Eleanor, or we would be having friends to dine or going out to dinner. For Eleanor had been swift to use my success to broaden both our lives. Young and adorably happy, eagerly alive, she did for me what she had done for her father, filling my life with other lives. She was an artist in living, it was a joy to see her make out a list of people to be asked to dine. Her father, once watching the process, remarked to me in low, solemn tones, She's a regular social chemist, who has never had an explosion. He was often on the list, and through him and his many friends and the ones I made through my writing, by degrees our circle widened. We met all kinds of people, for Eleanor hated sets or cliques. We met not only successful men, but, God help us sometimes, we also met their wives. We met successful writers, artists, and musicians, and a few people of the stage. We met visitors from the West and from half the big cities of Europe. We furbished up our French and German, our knowledge of books and pictures and plays. Successful books and pictures and plays. Through Eleanor's father and his work our minds were still held to the past, to the harbor which had taken me, bruised and blind and petty, and lifted me up and taught me to live, had given me my work, my home, and my new God. I was grateful. I was proud. I was in love and I felt strong. And my view of the harbor in those days was of a glorious symbol of the power of mind over matter and of the mighty speeding up of a world of civilization and peace, a successful world, strong, broad, tolerant, sweeping on and bearing us with it. So we adventured gaily, not deeper down, but higher and higher up into life. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Weiss